Hello and welcome to Africa Stories in the 55. I'm Laura Angela Bagnetto. We have two historical novels this month. First, there's South African writer Fred Kumalo. His book, Dancing the Death Drill, was just published by Penguin Random House. It's a fictionalized account of one of the worst maritime accidents in South African history, the sinking of the SS Mendy. Literally forgotten by historians because most who died were black South Africans, this year marks the 100th anniversary of the tragedy. But I'll let Fred tell you about his book. My inspiration for the novel was a real-life historical event. Close to 800 black soldiers from South Africa traveled to the Western Front in France to fight in the First World War. It's a story that has been told to us very, very superficially. So I wanted to explore it further for future generations so that people understand what really happened there. Because as the soldiers were traveling from South Africa to England first, they had to cross the English Channel. That's where their ship had an accident. It collided with another ship. We lost 646 men most of whom were black soldiers and some of their officers. But it's never been properly observed. It doesn't exist in history books that have been published in the past, probably because these were black men, and you know the history of our country. Black history has has always been hidden. It has never been celebrated or acknowledged. So my primary reason was for this to be recognized, to be remembered, and uh, celebrated for what it is, because it was a contribution by our black guys who went over there to fight. Now, there's, there are three main characters. There's one main main character, and we'll just use one of his names just to give our listeners a hint. Uh, he has many names, but Pizzo, um, and he also has two other friends. Now, um, the story of Pizzo is special because he seemingly is the voice of the voiceless, and he's also the voice of reason and of justice, ultimately, you find out. Yes, he is an embodiment of the dreams and aspirations of many of these men who thought they were contributing for the advancement of the cause of South Africa during the First World War. He's a very complex character. He's a person of mixed race. And as we know, South Africa has always had these problems with identity and race. My decision to use him as a vehicle for getting people to talk about issues of identity is one of the considerations I've made as I embarked on this particular novel. Part of this is based on this historical prayer that was given on the boat where the reverend cited all these different people who were coming together. And it seems that that your book also transcends the intra-community differences within South Africa, that uh, there was a brotherhood among the men. The reverend's speech as the ship was going down speaks to the uh, commonality, the brotherhood that was there on the ship. Despite these linguistic and cultural differences, he was saying to his comrades, we are here in this together as brothers. We fight as South Africans, uh, regardless of our linguistic uh, differences. The spirit has always been there, despite uh, the linguistic uh, differences. This is a true story that is quite special to black South Africans in general. Were you a bit afraid to approach this topic because of the special place it has in everyone's heart? No. In fact, a lot of people that I spoke to while I was still doing my research, 
we're saying we need this to be documented because it doesn't exist in terms of the history books which were written by our colonizers. This story doesn't exist. So let us put it in writing. But of course the challenge for me was which aspects of the story, because it's a big story, it's very, it's very filled with detail. Which one do I leave out? Which one do I focus on? That was my major challenge. And the book as it is, is long enough. It had to be cut. My intention as, as I started writing was not just to document the actual sinking itself only in isolation to what happened before. I wanted to look at these men who were on this ship. Where did they come from? What was their motivation? Why would they want to go and fight a war, which was a white person's war in Europe? What was the motivation? So that is the essence, the challenge uh, that I was facing as I was researching and also writing the book at that time. Up next, looking at the 1994 Rwandan genocide of Tutsis and moderate Hutus from a non-Rwandan perspective, I sat down with Abdurrahman Waberi, a Djiboutian writer and author of Harvest of Skulls, just translated from French and out this year on University of Indiana Press. He explained the process he went through to write his piece. The version of uh, Harvest of Skulls that have been out almost 16 years ago, it was called Book Livre pour le Rwanda. So I have chosen actually not to identify uh, genre-wise because it was a mix of fiction, short pieces of fiction, and vignettes, so short, f- short pieces of non-fiction. And the whole makeup was a point to uh, say, uh, to make that fiction was not enough for me to grasp the reality of Rwanda at that time, and non-fiction was not enough either. So I, I will give to the reader part of fiction and part of non-fiction. You are a noted Djiboutian writer, and this book, as you said, is about Rwanda during the genocide and post-genocide. So what was it about this topic that really pulls you in and, and made you write this book? Well, actually, it goes back to the aftermath of the genocide of Tutsi in Rwanda. So this was in 1994, and we, a group of African writers, have decided to uh, go actually first time in Rwanda and see what happened. Actually, we were functioning like a journalist, what we call long reportage. So this was long straight journalism and non-fiction. That was one of the ways of rendering the complex reality of Rwanda, post-genocide Rwanda. So we, a group of writers, went there in Rwanda, in Kigali, and also the rest of the Rwandan country. And then we remained for at least two months and uh, talked to people. And fiction means for me having a kind of eye-to-eye, face-to-face dialogue. It can be even actually non-verbal dialogue with someone else. So I discussed with, for example, genociders. We met them in prison in actually many places. And what we at that time was called top-ranked genociders. These are the people who killed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And killed not only on mass killings then, you know. This is genocide. They have killed villages. Some of those guys were just are as, as articulated as an American lawyer. <laughs> and just saying, you know, we don't need technically... Da, da, da. They were making their point and I was just listening to in an in a empathic way and just saying, this is what they have been through and I don't have to judge but just listen face-to-face to them, right? And so not only genociders, but also widowers, orphans and survivors and anyone else, you know, the whole rest of Rwanda, journalists. And most of the Rwandan, of course, were coming from outside at that time. They were uh, diasporic Rwandan. But anyhow, this particular situation was what I tried to mediate. 
I covered the 20th, the commemoration of the genocide, and people were only starting to really talk. And your book, there are certain parts, you don't know if they're fiction or if it's fact, you speak about dogs in a certain way that I remember when I was talking to people. I was just interested to know how you connected with people because this is a collective sorrow. Sure. I was not coming in the spirit of taking something from them and then using persuasion. or no, I was just living there for a while. And of course, if you have, let's say, the skills of someone who, because at that time there were many lawyers and uh, many GNOs, many uh, people coming from the world of the law or the medicine or human rights and blah, blah, blah. So there were many people coming and visiting them. And so they were kind of not always sharing the information. And it was also exhausting because they were just coming from also that hard time but even with that, because as we came as a group of writers, African writers, people were challenging us, and that was normal. And the common uh, question we were asked was the uh, way of challenging and settling us was, well, guy, you, okay, you say you're writers, fine, you're Africans, fine, but where were you four years ago? And where are you now here? And you cannot answer to those questions, you know. I just say, you know, we are trying to mourn something with you. Do you have any projects you're working on? The one thing that I'm working now is on a film script on Again the Great. And I'm also lucky to have people calling me and just you saying, you know what, why not work with me? So um, we, we have almost finished the film script on Thomas Sankara. Oh, wow. Yeah. Let's have the film in a, maybe in a year or a year and a half. Hopefully something great will come out. Thanks for joining me today at Africa Stories in the 55. I'm Laura Angela Bagnetto. Do you have a favorite living African author you want to hear about? What are you reading? Write to us at storiesinthe55 at rfi.fr. That's storiesinthe55, all one word, the 55 is numbers, at rfi.fr. Storiesinthe55.